and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray once more for us. Lord, you have gathered us today to be with you. God, we pray that you declare to us your word. You would change us by it. You would prepare our hearts to meet and to know and to trust in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What kind of relationship do you have with your alarm clock? When it rings in the morning... How do you respond? A sudden wake-up call from a sleepy state is typically an unsettling event, isn't it? Well, historically, wake-up calls weren't privatized to personal alarm clocks, but someone literally must come and wake you up. I'm sure waking up somebody was likely always a job underpaid. If you've ever had to wake up somebody, you would agree with me. But what moments or events in your life were like an alarm clock, a wake-up call? Was it a moment of clarity in the aftermath of a personal injury? Maybe a discouraging diagnosis? Maybe losing a loved one? Or preparing to bring a child into the world? Or that child needing particular care or a menu? Realizing that you're going to get married, perhaps. Or would it have been understanding that there is in fact a God and he cares what you do and what you think, what you believe? Wake-up calls are messengers. Wake-up calls break the ordinary and they recalibrate our lives so that we turn from that which is less important, that which is potentially useless, that which maybe is detrimental to us, that we would turn to something of immense importance, of value and benefit. Wake-up calls are not pleasant, but they are necessary. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, we would like to stay in our warm, our seeming warm comfort of our beds of lethargy, of apathy, of pleasing ourselves, of feeling bad sometimes about what we do, but not really wanting to change that, of not really being ready to face the Lord when he comes back. See, Mark's gospel If it's anything, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. It's an open biography saying, this is the good news of all news. This news has come, and you must be ready to receive him, to believe upon him. See, Mark was a close companion of the the disciple, the apostle Peter. And that's likely where Mark is getting, right, his first-hand account of Jesus' life, his ministry, and his passion, right, His, his death and resurrection, and Mark's, uh, Mark is likely writing this from, uh, from Rome with Peter as they and the church are experiencing more increasing and severe persecution. But Mark's message to all those who are persecuted and all those who aren't, everyone everywhere, it's about a person, a king. It's about the Christ. 
It's about God coming to his people. And that this God, the Son of God, came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's what Mark's gospel is about. For us today, we start nowhere else but the beginning. right? Mark 1, 1 through 8. And these verses are intended to be a wake-up call to you and me. And so this text, and you'll see this written in your bulletin, it's teaching us this. The Lord awakens his people through chosen messengers. The Lord awakens his people through chosen messengers. So you must wake up to receive him. You must prepare yourself to receive him. Well, in the first few verses, we wake up or prepare to receive him by recognizing the gospel news. The gospel news. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This line serves actually as both a title and also the entire content of the book. And it's all saying this. All of God's promises throughout all of history are being fulfilled right here, right now, with one singular person, Jesus Christ. Now, the name Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah, it means the anointed one, or some might say the, the one set apart. So the Christ, or the Messiah, was coming to defeat all of God's enemies, all of Israel's enemies, even Satan himself, Genesis 3 would say. And the Messiah would be a greater prophet than, the, than Moses. He would be a faithful and perfect priest, representing the people to God, and he would be a perfect and eternal king in the line of David, as God had promised David. And he would come and he'd rescue God's people from slavery and foreign rule. And so in other words, whoever this Christ would be, he would be the person that every Jew was waiting for in the entire world. And Mark is saying, this is it. Here he is. Verse 1. Mark also adds, though, the Son of God, because he's saying the Messiah is not merely a man. No, he has divine sonship. But what about that word we've heard maybe many times, the word gospel? What does that mean? Sure, you might be able to say, well, it means good news, but it's more specific than that. You see, the gospel in that time, that word was used in the secular world for news of a victory from a battlefield. Or news of a king who just won the victory and was coming home. And in Greek, <clears throat> excuse me, the word gospel, it was always found in one form. It was always found in the plural, gospels. And so the reason why this was is because it was signifying whatever good news was being declared. It was just one piece of good news among many good newses. Not a real word, but I will use it for emphasis. One, this is one good news just among many good newses. But Mark in verse 1 does something phenomenal and profound. Gospel in that, in the Greek there, is singular. Singular. Mark is saying this is not one good news among many. No. Mark is saying that there is no other good news but this news, but this gospel. This is the gospel. And what is it about? It's about a person. It's about a king and what he comes to accomplish. And this is why throughout all of the book of Mark, you could ask this when you read the book of Mark. What is this text teaching me? Well, every page, every word is telling you something about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. 
In verses 2 through 3, if you look again, Mark actually sews together three prophecies, even though he says it's from Isaiah only. The first line in verse 2, if you look there, of the prophecy, it begins, Behold, it's telling of a messenger who would lead God's people to the promised land if they'd only obey. That's what's happening in Exodus. And then the second line there of verse 2, after behold, is from Malachi 3.1. And in Malachi 3.1, it's where the Lord is sending a messenger to, to prepare, his way, uh, prepare rather for him to come. But he's not coming to save, actually. In Malachi, he's coming to judge because this people didn't obey because they loved other gods, and because they hated their neighbors. And then Mark ties off the bow here in verse 3, in Isaiah 40, verse 3. That's, it's in that entire verse. And Isaiah prophesies a messenger, one who will cry out in the wilderness to pave the way for the coming Lord to do something. See, Isaiah, he actually is in the Old Testament, uses that same word, euangelion, or euangelion, gospel, that Mark uses. He uses it pretty frequently, and when he does, it always is pointing to one good news. It's that God is coming to save, restore, and renew his people. That's how Isaiah uses it. And this is likely why Mark even says, as we've heard from Isaiah, a messenger comes to save, restore, renew. And so it's with the backdrop of these prophecies that Mark is saying all of history, all of the Old Testament is expecting that the Lord's coming will be preceded by a messenger. That messenger is going to come to a disobedient people and a people who need to repent and turn their hearts back to God. And if they don't, lest they don't, they will be judged. So connect the dots here. Who is coming on the heels of this messenger? Yahweh, the Lord himself. See, by Mark chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is implicitly being shown as who? Yahweh, coming in the flesh. This is why Mark is declaring to you this morning, this is the gospel. God in the flesh coming to you. You must wake up. You must prepare to receive him. Children, I'll say it again, children, and I get your beautiful eyes, what is your favorite news to hear? What's your favorite news to hear? Is it that it's pizza night? Is it that all the chores are done? They're already done. You don't have to do any more. Is it that you're going to the zoo or to the park or to your friend's house or to the pool? No more this year, probably. But what is your favorite news to hear, children? Adults, what are your favorite news sources to follow do you get your news from X, formerly known as Twitter? Is it from your favorite news channel or an online source, the radio, the newspaper, email forwards? Adults and children, you indeed have your favorite messages to receive, your favorite even messengers to tell you such news. And often you like the news that blesses you or says that you don't need to serve Right? Or gives you some benefit of uh, reinforcing your mindset, your lifestyle, or your firmly held convictions. Or for adults, even massaging your ego. But God, through the messenger of Mark, wants us to see that all news, good or bad, or ugly for that matter, must be now understood in light of this news. In light of this gospel. The good news of all newses. 
See, the news is that the Lord is coming in the flesh to save and redeem sinners and to conquer all of his enemies. Now, this, is, this news is not to ignore or discount uh, the truly great news of pregnancies, right, of marriages, of good grades, of upcoming vacations or raises at work. And this news is not to disregard miscarriages or divorces or failing classes or losing jobs or getting sick. No. But it does mean that no good news is so good that it is better than this news. And no news is so bad that it can outshine this news or that it can undo this news. See, when you hold the news in your hand in the morning or when you hear it from your mom and dad kids or you see it painted across the headlines, your response must be to hold it rightly. You see, nothing can undo or outdo what Mark is telling you to wake up to. God came in the flesh. This was the greatest news of all time. It still is the greatest news of all time. So to prepare to receive him, to wake up, you must shape all other news that you follow and love to hear in light of that news. In light of that news. That's what Mark wants to hit in verses 1 through 3. Well, in verses 2 through 3, it says a messenger would come but verse, verse 4 says what? Somewhat fun, uh, funnily. John appeared. Verses 4 through 6 show that John the Baptist is the chosen messenger. He's coming to awaken the Jews so that they would be prepared to receive the coming Lord Jesus. Well, John is where? He's out in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is figurative. It's not literally everyone, but he says all, it's like all of the Jewish country of Judea and the capital city of Jerusalem are coming out to him and they're confessing your, their sin. And this is no small event. Actually, the most famous uh, historian from that time, Josephus, records this. He was no Christian, but he records this event of the immense impact that John's baptism and his call to repentance was having. So we should ask Mark, tell us more. Who is this John? Well, Mark says... Here's what he said, here's what he wore, here's what he ate. Well, John's attire, because the Bible typically doesn't care about what people wear, John's attire and his menu are shown to us in order to show us that John is a prophet. It's trying to shout to you, John is a prophet. And for some context, it's been about 400 years since the last agreed-upon prophet had spoken. Right? That prophet was the prophet Malachi. So you can see why the news of a coming Messiah or Christ was so very important. It had been centuries without God speaking afresh. And notably, if we went to the Gospel of Malachi, the last one to come, or not the Gospel of Malachi, I apologize, the last book uh, given through Malachi, his last verses in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, it says this. It explains that before the Lord comes to his people, one of the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament, Moses was one, the other one was Elijah, Elijah's going to come back. He's going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. Lest God should come in judgment, it says. And you see, John's attire and his menu match the precise description in 2 Kings 1.8 of Elijah's food and attire. Right? And notably, Elijah was also out in the wilderness where John the Baptist is having his ministry. You see, John the Baptist was that prophesied Elijah. The last words Malachi spoke, here he is, John the Baptist. 
And this is something Jesus even confirms in Matthew 11:14, saying that John the Baptist was Elijah to come. And so John, the chosen messenger, the new Elijah, proclaims a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism nor repentance were new things to the Jewish world. Right? Repentance means to change one's mind. It means to alter one's understanding. And so repentance is actually less about feeling sad or bad for what you've done. And repentance is actually changing actions. That's true repentance. And baptism for the Jew, as we talked about last week, it pointed to these ritual cleansings and these washings. But for the non-Jew, for the Gentile, baptism was the mark or the rite of passage of their conversion of starting to worship Israel's God, their conversion to Judaism. And so the shocking piece, get this, the shocking piece of what John is doing is that he is going to Jews and he's saying, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin. You need to be baptized, Jews, just like the non-Jews. See, John is being incredibly offensive. John is saying, your faith is so dead your religious systems and institutions and sacrifices, which God gave you, commanded you to do, they're so corrupted that the only option for you is to come out of them, is to come out to repent, to confess your sins, and to receive forgiveness. We should notice even where John is calling to them from. He's out in the wilderness. Now see, the wilderness should have meant something or signaled something special to the Jew. The wilderness was where God had met, he had tested, he had guided, and he had helped their, their ancestors in ages past. And so to some degree, the wilderness was actually a, a, hope, a symbol of renewal, of hope, of breaking the ordinary, right, so that they might return to God. And what happened? Verse 5 says the Jews, many of them, all, chose not to be offended. Obviously some did. But many went out to John to repent, confess, and be baptized. You see, what is happening here in these verses, this grand repentance and confessing of sins is what Malachi said would happen. It's the hearts of the people being turned back to the Lord. And what is all of that? That's preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That's how the way of the Lord is prepared, through repentance and faith and confessing one's sins. You see, the great teacher uh, and pastor, R.C. Sproul, he spoke with many brilliant non-Christians through his years through, about, about philosophy, about science, about many topics. And he would ask so many questions. And he sought to reason with them about faith in Jesus Christ. And many would scoff, right? How can you be so well studied and yet hold to such a silly thing as faith in Jesus? But then Sproul said that he would often ask one question that would undo them. What do you do about your guilt? What do you do about those things that you do wrong, that hurt others? See, some would ham and haw. Some would speak of the good things that they do. Or simply, some wouldn't have an answer. Well, what about you today? What do you do with your guilt, with the shame of your faults, your shortcomings, and let's be honest, your downright meanness at times? What do you do with that? to the non-religious, to the unchurched or de-churched here today. Perhaps you may point to being a better-than-most type of person. Say, I'm not as bad as the next guy. 
But understand this, if John, the Baptist, coming to the people who received all of God's promises and presence, if he goes to them and says, you all need to repent, then what does that mean for you today? It means you would be without hope based on that answer. But you do have hope. You do have hope. But it requires that you, just like the religious-looking people, to come out of the ordinary sin of life, to join us here in the worship or here in the wilderness to worship, to repent, to change your mind about who God is, about who Jesus is, to confess your sins. Why? So that you could have certainty that you receive forgiveness today, where your guilt is no more. For the Christian or the churched person here today, do you wonder why God doesn't seem to work afresh in your life? You try to have experiences to prove it all the time. That's how I know God's working. What this text is saying, even to you, is that your faith may be lacking. Why? Because you do not see repentance as the, as the piece for God to work in your life. You don't see confessing of sin as the necessary thing to prepare the way of the Lord to do something again in your life. This is why perhaps your faith is so uninteresting to you and your neighbors. Why it's so unappealing to your children and your family. And the message is what? You too must come out of your religious status quo life. You too must come out of looking to your church attendance to justify you. Come out of your seeming immense theological knowledge with no follow through. Come out of calling your sin simply struggles that you feel bad about but you're not willing to change from. Come out from looking to your family's faith to prove that you believe. You must come out. The message of John the Baptist is to wake you up. You must, we must, all of us, we must beg God for his grace and for his spirit, the Holy Spirit, his power to awaken us today, to drag us, to drag us out of the ordinariness of what we look to to make us righteous before God. We must embrace repentance that we might taste, that we might taste the sweetness of forgiveness. We all must do that. When our last two verses, if you look with me, verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist here, he's showing us something. He is saying, I am only a messenger, not the Messiah or Christ, not the coming Lord. But notice, John's way of life, his message, and his commitment to his calling made him a messenger worth listening to, right? People loved John amidst him saying really hard things. John was renowned. Even later on in Jesus' ministry, they're like, is Jesus just John reincarnate? That's how great they thought John was. But what is John's message? Verse 7. There is a person, one, coming after me who is greater, mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop and untie. See, in that world, removing one's sandals and washing their feet That was reserved for the non-Jewish slave to wash the Jewish master's feet. John is saying the difference between me and the one coming is greater than that of the lowest rung of society and the highest rung. John is saying, I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm just a messenger. So what does he say in verse 8 makes the coming one so great? Well, verse 8, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, not just water. 
You see, the Old Testament, when it talks about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is associated with the presence of God and also with the power of God. And the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is given usually for a specific task. Think Samson killing a lot of people with a jawbone. Right? You think of wild things in the Old Testament. But the old person who has the, uh, or rather the only person who would ever have the authority to grant the Holy Spirit to somebody is who? It's God alone. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. And, and John is saying the one coming has this authority. And this, ver- this fits with verses 2 and 3, right? Who's coming? Who's, who's the messenger preparing the way for, according to Malachi, according to Isaiah? Yahweh, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The baptizing with the Holy Spirit is prophesied in the Old Testament. This is something that's so interesting. When you find prophecies in the New Testament, typically those writers, what they're doing is they're giving you a prophecy, but they're saying you need to also catch the context of what's happening back in those prophecies. And you need to bring that forward to understand what we're saying. Well, here, he, uh, or rather, when it talks about the baptizing of the Holy Spirit, there's a number of verses that address this. Isaiah 44.3 records God saying, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. Joel 2, 28-29 speaks of God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And Zechariah 12.10 actually adds something unique. Listen in this one. It says, or God is speaking, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, God, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. You see what's happening here? The spirit is being poured out in the context of God saying that he himself will be pierced will be killed by his people. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Ezekiel 36, though, we read this earlier, didn't we, for our Old Testament text. In verses 25 to 27, I'll just recap parts of it. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, cleansing you from all idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within. And I will put what? My spirit in you. So that you can walk in my statutes and obey my rules. Why? so that you will be my people and I will be your God. You see, in John speaking of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit, we should get these pictures of these prophecies in Zechariah where you see God is going to be pierced, right? He's going to die. And what will happen after that? He will then pour out the Holy Spirit upon the people And in doing so, the people will be able to live for him, obey him, and truly become his. Verse 8, when addressing its prophecies, it's drawing this picture for us of these prophecies of what the rest of the Gospel of Mark will paint for us clearly. That is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. That he comes to die for your sins and for my sins. And then what does he do? He is resurrected. He ascends into heaven. And what does he do from heaven? He baptizes the church with the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit upon his people who trust in him. And what, it, what happens when he baptizes the church? He makes the church into a chosen messenger to go to all the world. Do you see that? A chosen messenger to all the world. There's really two applications for us here. As you can see in our last little line there, 
of what one of these applications is. So the Lord awakens his people through a chosen messenger. So you prepare yourself for him by what? By hearing the messenger's call. See, when God gives you pastors and elders, teachers, older godly men and women, parents, who teach you the message, who are faithful to the scriptures alone, you must listen to them. You must listen. The moment that Pastor Matt or I or any of the others that I've mentioned stop declaring what the scriptures say, you must shut your ears and may God shut our mouths. But as long as the messenger sent to you faithfully preach the gospel, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, you must listen. But here's the second application, right? If the Lord awakens his people through a chosen messenger, so prepare yourself by what? By becoming messengers for him. He makes the church into messengers. He baptizes the church with the Holy Spirit, not just that you'd obey and become his, yes, but that you would become a chosen messenger, delivering the news to the world of the gospel. The gospel. I remember overhearing a conversation with a small, sweet child and a beloved aging relative once. The sweet, small child had learned that this relative doesn't go to church, doesn't, doesn't trust in Christ, and they were so shocked. But their response was to go to that relative And they leaned in close to their face. And they said, do you know that God made all things, even you? The person responded, is that right? The sweet child said, yep. Why don't you go to church? You see, what? And his response was amazing. His response was, no one has ever taught me how. John the Baptist was a special chosen messenger, but the Son of God was pierced, resurrected, ascended, and baptized the church with the Holy Spirit. So you, small, sweet child, aging, wise, older person in our congregation, so that you would become a messenger to tell in the simplest of ways that God has come to save the world, to rid sinners of their guilt, and to make them his people. Mark says this is the gospel. This is the gospel, the person Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he's done. This week, begin praying for one person, every one of you, who has known Christ. If you don't know Christ, your role is to believe in this good news today. It's for you. It's for you. But begin praying for one person in your network, in your sphere of life, that they would hear and believe. And then be bold to ask one question. One question. What was the best news you've ever received and why? Ask that question. What was the best news you ever received and why? And if they return that question to you, you in fact have an answer. See, the Lord awakens his people through a chosen messenger, so you must wake up, preparing preparing yourself to receive the coming Lord by recognizing the gospel, by shaping all other news around it, by repenting and confessing your own sin, knowing that your guilt is taken away. And finally, It's by listening or hearing his messengers who preach the word faithfully, not those who don't. And finally, also for you to become a messenger yourself. Do you know that God made all things, even you? He even went to the cross that you might believe and know and be redeemed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people 
We are a people who love the sweet, sweet comfort of our beds of lethargy, of apathy, of pleasing ourselves and not being unsettled. Oh God, by your grace, would you get us off the religious wheels we run. May we come out to you in the wilderness. May we come and worship. And may you, Lord, produce in us what you command. Would you call us to repent and would you lead us in such repentance? Pour out your spirit upon us. We know you do and have promised to do so. Make us messengers, O Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.